was Saturday the 10th of September 1988 and in the headlines. BBC presenters were in a helicopter crash. Mike Smith and Sarah Green were seriously injured in a helicopter crash in Gloucestershire. Miss Green broke both her legs and an arm when the helicopter her partner was piloting smashed into trees close to where he was attempting to land. Mr Smith, who bought the two-seater craft after learning to fly in February, suffered a broken back and ankle. And in the chart at number one was Phil Collins with Groovy Kind of Love. This day changed the life forever for Peter Boxall and his wife Christine. They live with their son Lee, aged 15, and daughter Lindsay at their mid-terraced house in Sutton, one of the larger of the London boroughs. Sutton is a very old town, recorded in the Doomsday Book of 1086 as having two churches and about 30 homes. In 2011 census, the population of the town was counted as 41,483 and a whole borough population of just over 204,000. It is the home of the Royal Marsden Hospital and the Institute of Cancer Research. Warning, please be aware that content in this podcast does discuss the murder of a child and also child sexual abuse, and in part is quite distressing. Well, Lee was a very lovable boy. He was a little bit timid. He wasn't, didn't have a lot of self-confidence. Um, for example, he, he loved to go to football games, but he would never go to a match on his own. He'd always go with a friend because he was, he was a little bit frightened that he might uh, get lost on the way or somebody might um, you know, pick on him. So he, he wasn't streetwise. Oh, Lee loved, loved to listen to music and uh, he's still got a lot of his vinyl records upstairs. And uh, he, he loved to listen to to artists like Tapao and uh, Dire Straits, uh, that, 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 people that were popular at the time and uh, I think they had good music taste. Lee was very quiet, a bit immature I would say, um, very kind, just a lovely boy. Never went out, he used to go out with his friend who lived next door um, or play on the green but we used to go out as a family as family gatherings. He didn't hang around the streets or anything like that. It was on 10th of September 1988 that Lee went missing. It was a warm summer t- summer's day, bright and sunny. Welcome back to Series 4 of the Detective Podcast. I'm Mark Williams-Thomas. I've been investigating major crime all my working life, first as a police detective and now for the last decade as an investigative reporter. Families often contact me as a last resort. They've tried everything else. The police have failed to get them answers. And for many, they have had programmes made or articles written about their case. All to no avail. That is when they turn to me for my help. I am passionate about helping victims and will very often take on the most difficult of cases. As I begin my investigation, sadly, I can never guarantee what the outcome will be. I am reinvestigating a real-life unsolved crime not making the TV crime drama where the series end can be written. I have a very clear statement that I tell all families that I work with. I cannot guarantee that I will be able to solve your case, but what I can promise is that I will do everything within my powers to be able to get you some answers, and always make them aware that I may uncover sad and uncomfortable details as I pull the individual's life apart. But what you will have at the end 
is a most thorough and detailed investigation and some more answers. In this podcast, I will give you a direct point of view as I do a full cold case reinvestigation into the disappearance and murder of 15-year-old Lee Boxall. I've been given unique and exclusive access to some of the police files with information that has never been publicly known before. I will be revealing new information and evidence for the very first time. As part of this cold case reinvestigation, I will trace and then interview people and start to build up a picture of what did or could have happened. You will be with me firsthand as I start to identify key witnesses and potential persons of interest. And along the way, I will share with you my thoughts and hypotheses as well as what the police theories have been along the way. All the time building the evidence and facts. All of this will provide you with a fascinating and unique insight into how I investigate cold cases. And crucially, I hope to get some answers as to what happened to Lee Boxall. I will later today meet Lee's parents, Peter and Christine. They are now in their mid-70s. I've already spoken to them many times, but to help you get up to speed with where I am, I'm going to get them to describe the day Lee disappeared. Well, it was on 10th of September 1988 that Lee went missing. Um, I got up with my wife and uh, his sister Lindsay, and we all had plans to go different, uh, separate ways. Uh, Lee was last to get up. He came downstairs, still in his pyjamas, and he sat down in an armchair, and uh, he he looked half asleep. And I, and I said to Lee, look, uh, your sister's going to her friends. I'm going shopping. Your mother's going to your grandmother's for the day. Uh, what are you going to do? And he mumbled something, but it's understandable. You know, he's 15 and he'd, he'd just woken up. And uh, I didn't want to press him. So I said, OK, we'll, I'll see you later when I come back from the shops. And... Uh, we, we all left home. I, I, I came back an hour or so later and uh, Lee, Lee had gone to Sutton. He'd gone to the high street with his friend and he, he went around the shops, sort of window shopping in the morning. He planned to go to a football game in the afternoon, but we weren't sure which match he was going to and he certainly wouldn't go alone, but he was going to go with his friends, so he'd be okay, he'd be confident with that. But sadly, his friend changed his mind and uh, went home and left Lee in Sutton on his own about lunchtime. And that was the last that he was ever seen. So we, we don't know what happened to him. We have no news whether he actually went to a football match or not. Oh, I don't think he would have gone on his own. I'm sure he wouldn't have. But Lee never returned from town and by Saturday night they were very concerned. Well, later in the evening, um, Christine rang me to see if every, everything was okay and she asked if Lee had come home and uh, I said, no, there's no sign of Lee, but I wasn't too worried because Lee was a boy of 15 and there's always the first time that somebody that age would, would sort of stay out late. He'd never stayed out late before, never. He would always tell us where he was and what time he'd be back. So it, it was unusual, but that, you know, I thought that was probably the first case that he maybe gone with some friends and um, hadn't been able to get to a phone box. So I wasn't too worried, but Christine was absolutely petrified. 
she got a cab and came straight home. And uh, we, between us, we rang around all friends, neighbours, relatives, hospitals to see if there'd been an accident. And we, we rang the police to see if there were any reports of anything happening to Lee. But there was no news at all. Well, I'm paranoid, so I kept ringing every half an hour here. And, and she ring my husband and say, is Lee home? No, older he'd say, oh, don't worry, don't worry. You come at six o'clock and this is how it was going on. And my poor mum was so, so ill. And it got to 12 o'clock and I thought something, something dreadful's happened. So I got a cab, God knows how, and came home here. And what did you think then? Well, I thought the worst. Yeah, I really thought the worst because I know Lee would have rung me to say, you know, he was going out or anything, which he never goed out, but he would have done. Um, and then Pete rang up the police, the hospitals, everything. Nothing. And the friends, all his friends, nothing. So that night, did you go to sleep? How were you feeling? What were you thinking? Well, on the night that Lee had gone missing, uh, we, we just couldn't sleep. We, we stayed awake all night, waiting for that knock on the door or for the phone, phone to ring. There's nothing. It was just like the start of a, a nightmare, a living nightmare. And this went on for weeks, no news of Lee at all. It was a, a parent's worst nightmare. 1988 was a long time ago in terms of policing. So how did they respond to a 15-year-old boy reported missing? Well, the police came here on a Sunday morning following Lee's disappearance and um, they, they assured me they'd be okay and that uh, he'd get a good telling off when they find him. And uh, a police officer took me around, sat in the car to, to see if we could find him, uh, but still no sign of him. And it was a day or two later that they began to take it really, really seriously. And that, that's unusual because in those days, I, th I think it was thought that if a boy of 15 disappeared, they, he'd be able to keep, keep himself safe, he'd be returning soon, he'd be okay, and there be no, should be no concern. And the media weren't interested at all at first. But fortunately for us, the police did their best and they did manage to get um, media interested. And there was a, a, an appeal on the news John Fashner, a footballer from Wimbledon Football Club, he made an appeal and, it, and I remember in that appeal he held up um, a replica of Lee's shirt, T-shirt, with the Frank Flintstone uh, motif on it. And uh, so, so they did their best then. And they did have a lot of police out in the next few days in Sutton. But I think um, it was thought that Lee would have gone to a football match and so the the, the, the main appeal was for anybody seeing Lee going in the direction of a football uh, ground. I wanted to know what it was like in the first few days and weeks after Lee's disappearance. It's just like a living nightmare. We, we couldn't sleep. Um, we couldn't leave the house. We were listening for the door, doorbell to ring, a knock on the door, a telephone call, but there was nothing. It was just like a, a nightmare. I think during the following weeks and months, we, we weren't really hearing much at all from the police. Um, 
Christine was trying to get publicity. That that was our main concern to get publicity. She was sending uh, a good good friend uh, made lots of posters, and uh, she distributed those to various football clubs and other organisations where they they thought they they could spread the appeal. Uh, so so we were doing everything really. There there was no charity like missing people charity to help us at all. There was there was nothing. We did have a police liaison officer come here now and again, and but still, no, no news at all of Lee. Well, we had a liaison officer come round to see us. Um, I suppose the police did what they could because they didn't have CTV then, so they had a, a mobile place in Sutton. So I thought, right, I'm going to distribute the posters, and I. And I did it everywhere you can imagine. Shops, schools, boats, everything. Everything I could think of. And that's what kept me going. I couldn't think anything different. You know, I was a bit so paranoid. If we went out, I'd be looking in bushes. You know, it, it was just overtaking me. And what was the first Christmas without Lee like? That first Christmas after Lee disappeared was, was the worst Christmas I've ever experienced. We, we didn't know that he would, whether he would be here or not. We didn't know whether we could get presents for him, a Christmas card. And on Christmas Day, we didn't know whether to, to lay a place at the table for him. It was just so hard to deal with that. And having Christmas without Lee here was really upsetting for us. Very, very difficult. Families of missing loved ones are so often left alone when the police investigation dries up. This is when the role of the charity, Missing People, becomes so vital. Oh, the, the Missing People charity are absolutely amazing. They've been helping me since 1993. They've always been available for me to talk to. They, they've drummed up lots and lots of publicity with appeals to help find Lee. We've been living in limbo. There was no help for us at all during those first years. Not until um, the, the charity, Missing People Charity, was formed. That was in 1993. Well, that was, that was five years with no help at all. They, they have supported us since then, and they still continue to support us. But until, until 1993, there was nothing for us at all. And uh, even now, you'll see lots of posters at bus stops and so on with Lee's photograph. And uh, that's incredible that they've done that. And uh, they, they even got me to sing a song about my son Lee at uh, St Martin's in the Fields in 2013, I think it was. And that, that led on to more and more publicity. And uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing charity. As part of my reinvestigation, I've managed to gain access to some of the police files. So what do the files say about the 1988 investigation? Sutton is a London borough and so therefore under the jurisdiction of the Metropolitan Police. The investigation in 1988 was quickly handed over from the Uniform to Four Area Major Investigation Team, often referred to as AMIT, a dedicated team of experienced detectives who investigate the most serious or complex crimes. AMIT took on the case and as is usual for any investigation of this type, they started to look at convicted child sex offenders, but this turned nothing up that they deemed to be relevant. After a few months' investigation, they failed to identify any significant leads worth pursuing. 
nor did they identify any persons of interest or suspect. The case went cold. They had nothing to go on. From the police files, it's not possible to say exactly how seriously they took Lee's disappearance, although it was clearly viewed with some seriousness because it was passed to Amit. Although what happened later perhaps goes a long way to reinforce my view that they did not do very much and the initial investigation was very poor. Certainly, it was a long way away from what should have been done in a missing child investigation even back then. A timid 15-year-old boy goes missing from a very supportive home and police simply treat the case as a missing person, not a critical incident. After just four months with no leads, four area major investigation team transferred it down to divisional CID at Sutton Police Station. The case went from being investigated by a major crime team to being transferred to a small area office in just a matter of months, treated as just another missing person that occasionally got looked at. It was not until 1990, nearly two years after Lee's disappearance, that the police, by chance, had a significant breakthrough. April 1990, a person was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Lee Boxall. He had been overheard saying that he'd done over a boy and buried him in a tomb in St Dunstan's Church in Sutton. This was reported to the police and they made inquiries with the church to see if there were any disturbed tombs. The result of this inquiry was that the church told the police no tombs had been disturbed. It is not known what inquiries the church made to confirm or make such a certain statement. The police arrested this person who had made the comments and interviewed him. At this stage, I cannot name the person who was arrested. During the police interview, he admitted to making the comments, but claimed they were empty boasts. You would have expected at this stage a very thorough investigation by the police and a detailed interview, especially given that they were now investigating, in light of the comments, Lee's disappearance as a possible murder. But sadly, this did not take place. Incredibly, during the interview, the arrested person was not directly asked if he knew Lee Boxall or what his links were to St Dunstan's church. The police took the church's word for it that no graves or tombs had been disturbed and as a result, no search was carried out in the grounds. The police obviously treated this information with little credibility. As such, the arrested male was released with no further action. However, what I now know and we will explore more in due course is that had the police been more thorough in this investigation and done some background checks, they would have identified some very important links to other information that should, and I hope would, have raised serious alarm bells. After this, the case went dormant again. So what else is contained within the files? It is very clear that during the 1990s, there was a constant flow of rumours and information linking a local paedophile to Lee's disappearance. This person is named in the police file but did not result in any action by the police. However, this person was not made a suspect, a person of interest or even interviewed by the police. The information came in and was simply placed on file. Nobody collated it. To realise that the information that was coming in all named the same person, a convicted paedophile, and it was important. However, some information did make its way to the National Missing Persons Helpline I'm not sure how this occurred, but thankfully it did, because they at this time did a much better job than the police in trying to investigate Lee's disappearance. The most significant rumour 
that they received and looked into was that again the same name paedophile was telling people different things about Lee and how he was still alive and had a girlfriend. Reading the case files highlights for me some very major failings in the police investigation in the years after Lee's disappearance. As a result, potentially very significant opportunities were missed. This paedophile told one young lady. He said that if you don't do as I say, you'll end up like that black bloke I buried on top of Lee Boxall. Then, 10 years after Lee's disappearance in 1988, another significant piece of information came in, this time via Crime Stoppers. The anonymous source named two males as being involved in the disappearance of Lee Boxall. One of those named was the same person that was arrested in 1990, who was interviewed and then eliminated by the police. So by 1990, police had two different sources split by years, naming the same person as being involved in Lee's disappearance leading to this person's arrest, but nothing came of it. And they also had numerous sources giving information directly relating to a convicted paedophile as being involved in Lee's disappearance and also the sexual abuse of girls. I can now name this person as convicted paedophile William Lambert, but none of it was investigated or followed up. Then in March 1999, a breakthrough Two witnesses came forward to the missing charity with significant new information. These witnesses named two men as being involved in Lee's disappearance. They also stated that they were involved in the sexual abuse of young girls at an unofficial youth club called The Shed at St Dunstan's Church in Sutton, the same town that Lee lived in. This information was followed up by a former detective and highly experienced officer Mike Platt, who had left the police service and was now working as an investigator for the missing charity. Very helpfully, I know Mike from my time working in the police. I worked with him on a number of paedophile investigations when he was based at New Scotland Yard's paedophile unit. Mike, great. Thanks for speaking to me. The last time uh, we met was many years ago, but we first met when you were working for the Metropolitan Police in their paedophile unit. Correct. And just give me a sense of what the type of jobs you were doing then. Well, we were we were looking at um, we were treating child pornography as a crime scene and um, investigating. We're try, trying to trace the children for their protection and to, and to investigate and hopefully arrest the perpetrators. That's basically the, the job. And in terms of your work after that, that brought you to the missing charity. Yes, um, I had some connection. I had some dealings with the, with the National Missing Person Helpline through one of their staff. Um, that, that got, through one of their staff, and and I came for, up to retirement in 1997. And Janet and Mary. Um, the founders of, of National Missing Person Helpline offered me a job, which I, I took up and, and thoroughly enjoyed. So your background, certainly your latter policing background, was very much around the sexual exploitation of children. Correct. Um, and what type of jobs were you doing at the charity? Um, I was I was employed to um, to, to case manage. Uh, cases where there was a possibility that um, sexual exploitation was part that the, the young young people and one of the cases that you were asked to look at was the disappearance of Lee Boxall 
So what did you do in relation to Lee's case? Um, I contacted... Uh, at that time, the police officer um, dealing with the case, uh, if, if you can call it dealing with because it was pretty dormant by then. The inquiry, the, the first inquiry had, had come to an end um, and the case was on the desk of a, of, a, of a police officer at South Norwood who was in charge of missing persons for the whole area. He was only too happy to to let me look at the case and, and to take anything, any information from the case that I wanted. And I, and I looked at, at the case and, and thought that St Dunstan's church um, was mentioned. I thought I'd, I'd make some inquiries there and walking into the churchyard, uh, Bill Lambert was um, doing some grass cutting or, or tending to, to the graves. Um, and and when we just struck up a conversation, he, he he didn't seem to be wary of me at all. I announced myself as, as a, an employee of missing persons, and that we were trying to to um, make some progress with, and support the family of Lee Boxall. And 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 I can't remember the exact words, but it, without any hesitation, he um, he uh, said that he newly. Um, and that he and and so I wanted further discussion, and we went into his hut. Um, and and uh, at, during the conversation, he said that he'd had met Lee or seen Lee after he went missing. I can't remember. It was two weeks seems to come to mind. Um, so that obviously pricked my ears up straight away, and um, and I brought the conversation pretty much to a close because I, there was just the two of us, and I. I wanted somebody with me um, to hear what he had to say. Mm. Um, so I closed the conversation. I, I, I did ask him, was there anybody with him at the time? And he said yes. And um, so I came back the next day with a colleague. He embellished it by um, by saying that he, he, he thought they thought he worked at the... DSS, and he had, had a pretty, you're looking for someone with a pretty wife. Um, I'm not sure, I don't think he mentioned a child, but he certainly mentioned the, the working for, for some, or a DSS, I think it was, in, in, in the area, Sutton. Uh, and the other guy backed him up, said they, uh, he waved, um, and I think the conversation they, they, they reported went like, oh, um, hi, Lee, and Lee waved back to them. And off he went in a different direction. Um, and Dave Flanagan and I went straight back and made notes on this. Um, obviously, uh, recognising it's extremely significant for somebody to, to see somebody after they've been reported missing. And the only person ever. And I did press him on why he hadn't reported it to the police. And his attitude was, that, well, they hadn't asked me. Nobody's been to see me. So is he saying he saw him and spoke to him or just saw him? No. And he was on the other side of the road, and it was a wave, hi, hi Lee, you know, hi, hi Bill, hi Lee, and 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 that was that was it. Um, uh, and then they went on to embellish it by saying that he worked for the DSS. Right. Um, I think it was the DSS. But then, but, but I do remember them saying, "You're looking for some for him with, and he's got a pretty young wife." And um, do you remember who was with him? Are they fun? Do you remember who was with him? Who who's the person? The guy. Well, I understand. My understanding now is that it, it was a guy called Smith, 
No, I, I, I certainly went back to the police with that information. Mike's information is really significant. So, two people who knew Lee are saying they saw him after he vanished in 1988. Lambert says that he saw Lee in 1989, so the year after he vanished. And Smith says that he spoke to Lee in 1993, near to a railway station, and that he was now calling himself Les. So, was Lee still alive in the years after his disappearance? This is really significant information. So, what came of it? Did this lead to arrests being made and searches undertaken? No, again, nothing happened with this information at all. The case was effectively mothballed, this time for a much longer period. It was not until 2003 before the case was looked at again as part of a standard review. Coming up next, we will find out what the 2003 police review uncovered. Hear about a tip to Crime Stoppers. In 2005, Crime Stoppers received an anonymous call from someone claiming that Lee Boxall had been killed and they gave the name of the killer. Start tracking down potential witnesses. In the days after Lee went missing, he said Lee was dead and that he would never be found. He said he was buried on grassland and then pointed to his head and said, it's all in here and find out what the initial police hypothesis was in 1988. Police believed that Lee went to Selhurst Park, where Crystal Palace Football Club play, and either en route there or on the way back home went missing as a result of foul play or possibly after being abducted. Or that Lee decided to leave home and set up a new life. Or that Lee went to the shed that afternoon where he was killed. You've just heard episode one, The Murder of Lee Boxall. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you please tell your true crime friends to listen and subscribe to our channel. If you have any thoughts or just want to get in touch, you can do so via our Twitter page, at The Detective FM, or go to our website, www.the-detective.co.uk. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by Mark Williams-Thomas, edited by Martin Kays, the music by Dylan Apega. The Detective is an original true crime podcast brought to you by Acast.